In the early 80s, rock music was a withering wasteland. There wasn't anybody really pushing the boundaries of rock. Then came five lads from Sheffield to set things straight. We could really kick rock music up the ass. We weren't going to settle for second best. An album is for life. Nothing was going to stop that record. Def Leppard traded their soul to a devil for detail. He knew what he wanted. He knew how to get it. Not saying, look, you can do it better. I really don't want to do this. It's insane. You do that one more time and you're out. I was having a breakdown. I just bawled my eyes out. I can't sing. After the smoke had cleared, they'd forged a metal masterpiece that resuscitated rock and roll. Wow, that's it. When this record came out, it was just like, whoa. A zillion voices. He just slammed home. They definitely raised the bar. That was the British invasion for me. Pyromania is like rock and roll 101. It had a big impact on my life. It has to play some kind of role on our music. five major hits on it that you'll still hear today. It still holds up. You can still blast it. I always have a copy of it in my collection. Death Leopard's Pyromania is an ultimate album. It's great music and great music lives and lasts forever. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Cooney. Now, crank it up. Welcome to the Growing Up Rock Podcast, and it's time for us to cover the third studio album release from Def Leppard. As we cover this year-long review of all the Def Leppard studio albums, this might be probably one of the more popular ones, as it is the first of two Diamond-certified albums that Def Leppard ends up with. And of course, I'm talking about Pyromania. This was my particular entry into Def Leppard, and I'm sure that's true for a lot of folks. As is always with these episodes, we invite along a special guest, and this special guest is basically uh, a third co-host on the show as many times as he's been on our show and we've been on his. I'm talking about Brian Davis from Damn Good Movie Memories Podcast. Brian, what's going on? It's my home away from home. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me on again. And this is going to be a lot of fun. I don't know if it's going to be as good for you as Van Halen, but that's okay. Everybody wants some some Def Leppard, I think. Everybody wants some. That's a Van Halen song. You're on the I wrong know, podcast. I know. <laughs> it's still early for Steven. I, I think Sonny got what I was going <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood, of course, you're there. What's going on, buddy? We're on like take six for the listeners. <laughs> Just want to let you know. That is true. But editing, Steve, can cut all that out, and you guys don't have to be subjugated to it. <laughs> At the end, you need to add all the outtakes, please. Yeah. <laughs> we, we would have left all the Godfather conversation in before we started recording, but that would have been all bad for me, supposedly. Yeah, yeah. It would have been. Nobody would have agreed with Pooney in his uh, synopsis of the Godfather flicks. 
But anyway, so Brian, to the listener that doesn't know you, which I can't imagine there are many of that listen to this podcast, tell folks a little bit about your podcast and your radio show. Sure. So Damn Good Movie Memories began in 2016. And so for the last five, six years, it's been uh, nonstop, one episode a week. It began about kind of movie subjects like your top whatever, first movies on a theater. It was a lot of fun, but I kind of ran out of steam on that. And I decided because my DVD collection is so huge, I could basically have content for the rest of my life uh, if I just do a random DVD episode every single week. And so that's what we've been doing for the last two or three years. And it's been a lot of fun. And again, Stephen and Sonny have guessed it a lot on that. And so we just get so deep into the film that if you've never seen it, you'll probably want to see it after hearing about the film because there's clips and and fun facts and things like that. And if you've seen the movie a million times, you'll enjoy it because you might learn something new. So to give the listeners a heads up, both Stephen and and Sonny are going to appear on uh, the remake of uh, Ocean's Eleven. Uh, So that's a lot of fun. And then specifically, Stephen's going to be on uh, Mallrats, which is a great Kevin Smith underrated film. And then Sonny's going to be on a great kind of retro 80s film, which came out in the 90s, and that's Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. So this will all come out probably around the same time as uh, the release of, of this pyromania. And then for the radio show, probably closer to what a lot of the listeners like it's bluesy hard rock that I'm into. So your ACDCs, your, your white snakes, your Aerosmiths, things like that. And that's on that metalstation.com every Wednesday night from 11 PM Eastern time. till as late as I want to go, usually about, you know, one thirty AM. So if you're on the West coast, it's a lot easier. If you're on the East coast, you eh, depends if you're a night owl or not, but uh, I think people enjoy it. So with the blues radio show, you go deeper, right? You go into some of the roots of these bands, not just the, like you go into Holland Wolf and things like that, as well as the ACDC and Zeppelin, right? Absolutely. So the show always starts off with the Bob Blues Block, which is dedicated to my father, who all he listens to is blues and soul music from like the 60s and 70s. And that's what my original love of music came from. So I got to play that early because after that, he goes to sleep. So (laughs) people hang out for the rest of it. So I do it early for him. But yeah, I mean, I if I'm going to play ACDC, I'm not going to play You Shook Me All Night Long or Back in Black. People have heard that a million times. So I'll play something like Get It Hot from uh, Highway to Hell or, you know, stuff that, you know, you're not going to hear on commercial radio anymore. Not that I don't, I don't think people listen to terrestrial radio anyway. So you might as well go deep. Uh, if you're going to play Whitesnake, play stuff from, you know, the late 70s or the early 80s before, you know, the self-titled album, though I like that album. You've heard it a million times. So introduce people to new stuff. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun doing that. It's kind of what you guys do, too. You guys don't necessarily play the hits. And I think that's good. Yeah, we try not to. I mean, definitely, uh, it's much better to hear those songs that you're not going to hear every day for sure. So we can, we can appreciate that. Absolutely. All right. So we're here to talk about Def Leppard's Pyromania in particular, Def Leppard. I'm guessing I'm going to know the answer to this, Brian, but where did Def Leppard come into the picture for you and particularly Pyromania? Was that your first entry point? So, no, I was only four years old when Pyromania came out. So suffice to say, I didn't discover Def Leppard until Hysteria. So that would have been 88 or 89. So I was in fourth grade, probably. Uh, eventually, I went back and checked out Pyromania. I usually go back and forth between Pyromania and High and Dry as my favorite album. I usually give the edge to Pyromania. I think as awesome as Pyromania is, though, it's also the album that began the shift in sound from like the ACDC-inspired hard rock band to an extremely overproduced pop rock band. And I totally understand that sales talk. It doesn't mean that the band was getting better song-wise post-Pyromania. And so I don't know if you guys have heard of Martin Popoff and his reviews and his books. He infamously gave Hysteria a score of 0 out of 10 in his review book. So uh, a lot of people, I think, tuned out. Some did, hard rock fans after Pyromania. But I think the loss of Pete Willis 
Uh, it never hurt their sales, but it killed them as a hard rock band. And I think people forget that all the rhythm tracks on Pyromania have Pete Willis on it. Phil Collin simply is not the same type of rock guitarist that Willis is or was. And I think even though I Colin is far more easy to work with, that's obvious. He's still in the band. He helped morph Def Leppard into the band that I think hard rock fans no longer find super appealing. Just look at his producing credits on Tesla's last album, Shock. I mean, he helped ruin that band, at least for that album. So, But Pyromania, amazing headphone album because of the production. I think you hear all sorts of little touches from Mutt Lang. And for me, this is the last great, truly great Def Leppard album. There are some good albums afterwards, but this is the last great album. Yeah, these are the t- uh, videos that were on TV when I first got into hard rock or into music really at all. So, you know, it was rare for a band in the 80s not to release an album for four or five years. Like, that was ridiculous, right? And, well, hell, Kiss released three in that time span. So these videos were on TV forever. Yeah, this was a big album for a lot of people because, like Sonny mentioned, I mean, this was MTV ready. MTV was just starting to come of age when the Pyromania video came out. So for me, this is the album because I'm full blown into rock and roll at this point. This is my junior year of high school. So definitely like I'm reading about Def Leppard in a lot of the British mags like uh, Kerrang! magazine and then uh, just getting excited about this new album release. And uh, I really didn't know much about the band previous to that because at this point I don't own On Through the Night or uh, High and Dry yet. And so this was my entry point full blown. So I got this record pretty early out. And I remember seeing the video on, do you guys remember Night Flight at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On the USA Network, that was Mm -hmm. one of the places that I could see videos because we didn't have MTV at our house uh, when it first came out. I had to go to a friend's house or to my sister's house, I think. (laughs) Uh, She had MTV. We didn't have cable TV or uh, MTV when I was growing up for the longest time. So this was definitely the first opportunities I got to see the band. My my recollection was, like a lot of people, the British flag uh, shirt that Elliot wears in the, uh, in the video. I just remember thinking, how cool is that? Uh, because you hadn't seen it before. So definitely a big record for me uh, in those high school years. So let's get into the discussion with the album cover. Definitely an interesting album cover. Uh, it's almost iconic at this point. Uh, the cover for Def Leppard's Breakthrough 83 album Pyromania came about because their manager wanted to move away from typical hard rock album art. Peter Mensch of Def Leppard's Q Prime management company met with the graphic designer Andy Airfix to discuss creating the artwork. As Airfix recalled on his website, Mensch said to him, Def Leppard are different than your average heavy rock band. The sleeve needs to reflect that. We've had all we can take of bad tattoos, terrible pictures, and half-naked women riding motorbikes. I don't know what's wrong with that. That sounds all cool to me. <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. Nope. <laughs> well, he felt it was too cliched, and they wanted something different uh, and more modern. Basically, that's what bought on this. The album at the point of designing the artwork already had uh, the title Pyromania. So they already knew they were going to call the album Pyromania before they did the artwork. 
And the album title came about because it was an inside joke that popped up during the uh, recording sessions. Pyromania got titled that because a guy named Craig Thompson, uh, who was an engineer on the record, accused the band of being pyromaniacs because they were having such a bad time trying to get the Marshall amplifiers to sound good on the record. So Joe Elliott recalled at one stage, Steve and Mutt Lang suggested we should take them into the garden and burn them. Craig piped in with a brilliant, broad Scottish accent and said, y'all are just a bunch of pyromaniacs. And that's where pyromania came from. And they decided to stick with it. So that's the information behind that. Brian, what do you think of the album cover itself? Well, I'm looking at kind of a, a a view of all their album covers. It's by far the best album cover of their whole discography. Talk about a really uninspired band when it comes to album covers. I mean, if you look post hysteria, it's terrible. Like it's just so boring. Uh, but pyromania, it's perfect. It's a great t-shirt. It's, it's everything. Like, it's just, it's really neat. Hysteria is not bad uh, after that, but after that, like it's, they really lost all sort of uh, creativity. So definitely way better compared to the first two. Yeah. Sonny. Uh, yeah, I love the album cover because it's very comic book, right? It might as well be a Marvel comic, you know, with the logo there. It has this feel of like this new wave pop kind of because all the colors pop. But then this Andy guy had done Dead or Alive and Thompson Twins covers, too. So, you know, obviously the guy knew what he was doing. It's, you know, kind of part comic book, part graphic design, which I think is cool. Yeah, way better than High and Dry, man. Oh, hell yeah. So actually, the people looking up on High and Dry should have been looking up at Pyromania. That would have made more That's sense. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so some basic facts about the album. The album was released January of 1983. It was recorded uh, January through November of 82. It was recorded at Parkgate Studio in England. The length of the record is 4457, which for this this time of uh this particular year that's a fairly long record for rock bands, for hard rock bands, 4457. I mean, it's not outrageous. They will become a lot longer, but 4457 isn't the 30-minute records that a lot of bands were putting out at that time. The label is Vertigo, Mercury in the U.S., and of course, the producer is Robert John Mutt Lang. Diamond Certified, this was the first of the two Diamond Certified albums. This was also the first record to feature new guitar player Phil Collin and the last album to feature original lead guitar player Pete Willis. So I can assume that neither one of you guys saw this tour because you guys were younger. I did see this tour on May 13th of 1983 in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I pulled up what they are saying the set list was for that. The opening acts for that particular show that I saw was John Butcher Axis, who was basically a Jimi Hendrix ripoff, playing first, Crocus on the Headhunter Tour, playing second, and then Def Leppard headlining. This was a short time after Def Leppard became a headlining band. They had been out on the road opening up for Billy Squire not long before I saw this tour crank up. The set list is as follows. Opening up with Rock Rock Till You Drop, they went into Rock Brigade, High and Dry Saturday Night, Another Hit and Run, Billy's Got a Gun, Mirror Mirror, Foolin', Photograph, Rock of Ages, Bringing on the Heartbreak, Switch 625, Guitar Solo, Let It Go, Another Guitar Solo, Wasted, Stage Fright, 
And then they ended with a, a pre-recorded traveling band by Creedence Clearwater Revival, if I recall correctly. So that was a set list, 17 songs. If you get the deluxe version, I think, of Pyromania, it, it has basically this concert from Los Angeles Coliseum with the same set list almost. So that's pretty much what it was. I swear to God, I remember them playing Die Hard the Hunter at our show. And the reason that that sticks out is because they had, uh, you can go on YouTube and see it, but they don't have a ton of like, it's not a fancy stage back then. They had some scaffolding and they had these two like scaffolding towers on each side of the stage that had the, uh, the crosshair thing that's on the album cover and little sparklers and and fireworks kind of flew off of those things at one point in time and i swear it was on die hard the hunter but what do i know i was 16 at the the time so i don't remember that far back by the way for the deluxe edition if you get that brian mays featured on guitar for traveling band so it, it really if you like that era and and they still sound great live it's definitely worth picking up so maybe it wasn't a pre-recorded version of Traveling Band. Maybe they did actually end with that and play that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right. And yeah, I don't, like I said, don't remember that much, but that was a set list and uh, it was an amazing concert. I sent Brian a picture earlier. I've got a picture of uh, Steve Clark out back in the buses signing my ticket stub because we used to hang around the buses back then and try to get people's autographs and pictures and stuff. And I was fortunate enough to meet him before sound check and take a picture of him so that was cool and that's a cool memory for me yeah and i uh, we also kind of briefly discussed that you used to have this great like kind of uh, picture frame of all of your early ticket stubs and and how awesome you know kind of the mid 80s were for you yeah definitely i mean ticket stubs back then were before they became these computer printout kind of tickets that you have today they used to have like it was embossed raised painted sort of ticket stubs. I don't know how to describe it. It's like if you ran your finger over the ticket, you would feel the lettering, right? It was uh, yep. printed the way that they printed tickets back then. Uh, and so they were just so much cooler. And I had, you know, I had probably my first 15 concerts in a frame, which somewhere it is, but I don't know where that is anymore. <laughs> yeah. They still do some of that, like for the Super Bowl, World Series. Right. They still do that. Post a picture of Steve Clark definitely when uh, this episode comes out. Yeah, I will for sure. Uh, I'll throw that out in the Facebook group. Uh, it's been out there a couple times, but yeah, it's uh, it's a cool moment. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. We wanted to try and make it a little bit more accessible to people that wouldn't necessarily buy Black Sabbath albums. It certainly was able to bridge the gap between the really hard metal people and also the traditional rockers that were afraid to really lean that far because it was so commercial, it was so pleasant, and yet at the same time, it was really rocking. You can be riding down the road. This may not even be your kind of band, but you're riding down the road and the music comes on and you find yourself, like I said, going, fuck, 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 fool, all right, so I don't know why there's exclamation points, but rock, rock, <laughs> till you drop is first. You know, Thomas Dolby's on this stupid track, and man, you hear him almost immediately. Brian, what'd you think about this track? Well, it's funny. I, I always thought rock, rock was uh, very similar to Let It Go, which, of course, opened up high and dry. 
I guess it makes sense since Rock Rock was originally written around the time of the first album, and it was called Medicine Man. I, I, you can hear demos of it uh, on YouTube. I think the main difference in Rock Rock compared to Let It Go is you can hear the underlying synths, as Sonny said, uh, in the intro to Rock Rock. But the main riff and the hard-rocking nature, is it's very like high and dry, like that album, which I've always found interesting since it's obvious that the band took was going to take a less straightforward hard rock take on Pyromania compared to the first two albums. But here they open up with probably the most hard rocking song on the entire album. I think it's an awesome opener. I, again, it would have fit perfectly on high and dry, especially if the intro was removed. I think the weak point of the song is the guitar. solo. I, I was never impressed with the solo in this song, which was Phil Collin and Pete Willis, far better soloist in my opinion. Just check out his, you know, the high and dry song Saturday night for the best example. Sonny mentioned it. The synths were done by the legendary keyboardist Booker T. Boffin. That's how he was uh, labeled as. It is really Thomas Dolby. He blinded everyone with science in the early 80s. And I think we should all just say it together right now. Science! There you go. <laughs> I would prefer to say Booker T. Boffin. <laughs> That's right. I, reg- I agree. Amazing keyboarder. Uh, Steven, you know, the song, first of all, it kicks ass. So it makes you just want to turn it all the way up when you're driving. But for an opener, it's just the production is so crisp. It just feels like an album for the ages, right? It's You turn this album on, you forget it's 1983. So Mutt did amazing things in the studio. Yeah, I think it's hard for people that are just people that are much younger that are coming into these records now and listening to it. It's a lot different effect from somebody in 1983 picking this record up and putting it on for the first time because it is so vastly different than what was out there at the time. And for me, I wasn't one of the people going, oh, this is a departure from High and Dry because I didn't really know High and Dry at that point. I was into the ACDCs and the Van Halens and Judas Priest and whatever was out at that time. So when I put this on, it felt so full, so bombastic, so crisp, like you said. It was just amazing. I didn't even hear the keyboards at the beginning till so much later when I started listening for it, but it wasn't something that was apparent to me. I just heard what I heard. And they used that intro as an actual intro live so it wasn't the band wasn't playing that they came in when the when everything kicks in that's when they hit the stage uh so it's just it's a bombastic track for sure next track the mighty photograph goddamn on mtv every 10 minutes it's unbelievable that this song did not crack the top 10 
Brian, I'm, I'm assuming you love this song. Probably sick of it, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's a song that made them superstars. Such an obvious choice as a first single. There is a burnout factor here, I think, with a few songs on this album, mm-hmm. uh, this being one of them. Yeah. But you can't deny what a well-crafted pop song, this a pop rock song this is. It's it's hard enough rocking for the rockers to dig, but then it's the huge Mutt Lang-style chorus that really gives us that mass pop appeal. Plus, you get... Uh, an album with cowbell there's cowbell on this and in addition to other you know kind of numerous musical layers that mutt lang likes likes to do and he was a genius in however with all of these layers i think it made it impossible to replicate live and maybe steven can talk a little bit more about that but as you guys mentioned when talking about the van halen discography last year it's the albums that last forever so the best sounding studio song should always win out ultimately over live uh, i will say that the guitar solo by phil collin actually fits the song fine on this because he's not such like a ripper on guitar i think for the hard rock songs i think willis or steve clark should have been the soloist and then you let uh, phil collin take the pop rockers like like photograph yeah and Stephen, pop culture wise i mean this is where you know most of the folks our age first time you see the union jack shirt is possibly the first time you ever see a headset mic on a drummer right there's caged women they're not doing enough obviously <laughs> and then joe is hitting notes that we really don't know many rock singers ever hit and he himself has said he wished he wouldn't have done that but good lord this this song's just so good uh yeah i mean this is the first dare i say the first def leppard song that i ever really heard because i heard this before i heard the record because of the video coming out and uh you know this song we're going to go through this album and you're going to hear a lot of fatigue factor with this album because there are so many songs that are still being played to death today. So we'll talk a lot about fatigue, but that doesn't make the song any less of a song. Photograph is nearly a perfect song. And what I want to make a point to everybody that's listening to this episode now, this album was so hugely influential in the 80s melodic rock barrage that would come later on in the 80s and influencing them, that the influence is still being felt today with bands that are putting out music today. I heard a new song from that band Hardcore Superstar, which is kind of, they're almost a sleaze band. They're not anything like Def Leppard, but they put out a song recently and I was like, holy shit, that sounds just like the breakdown or the bridge to photograph because they were using something like uh, some melodic uh, melody change that reminded me a lot of Def Leppard. And so photograph for me is a perfect song. It's still probably paying Pete Willis's bills today because he's listed as a co-writer on this, on this song. And the other interesting thing about this album as a whole is that I think Mutt Lang has a writing credit on every song on this record. Yeah. He does. So that's crazy. This album is making a lot of money, probably still today, for both Mutt Lang and Pete Willis.
all those retro Swedish bands owe everything to Def Leppard, as you said. Like uh, you can hear Crazy Licks, all of those types of bands. They really they still have that kind of sheen production, you know, that pop pop rock production. Even a band like Bon Jovi that came oh, right. out later, yeah. you know, after this. So yeah, uh, it's just that can't be undermined the influence that uh, this production, this album had on people. Absolutely. Yeah, those European melodic bands, the three bands that you normally hear when they're talking about influence, Def Leppard, Whitesnake, Europe. Those are Mm -hmm. the three that you hear over and over and over. And then when you listen to them, it's like, oh, I can hear it all through there. Yeah. Right. So now talk about burnout. So, you know, we said, okay, photograph burnout. It topped out at number 12. Let me tell you some burnout songs that Mm -hmm. were in the top 10 when it was at number 12. Let's Dance was number one. Mm -hmm. That's burnout. Beat it. Flashdance. She blinded me with science. Little Red Corvette. Wow. Right time by the Culture Club. Jeopardy. If you're on the West Coast, you hear Jeopardy like every other day on the goddamn radio. Yeah. So there was some, they had some tough songs to get over. So. And let's talk about this. Every one of those songs that you just mentioned, huge on MTV. Every one. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I think this is where MTV may have even had more of a uh, influence than than radio. Yes. So because visually yeah. they are much more appealing on video than they are, I think, maybe even on radio. So, yeah. And I think it's important to point out this little fact. Last year, we did the uh, Van Halen series this year. Def Leppard photographed the video. Joe Elliott does a split off the drum riser. Yes. Who else does that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that is right. And with the cage women, I mean, think about Rocky like a hurricane. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, so next we go to Stage Fright, and uh, Brian, your buddy Pete Willis, the song got him fired. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is the other heavy rocker on the album. Uh, it, again, reminiscent to the stuff found on the first two albums. It's also the closest to rock rock, which makes sense. Yeah, Joe, Joe Elliott's voice is super raspy on this song. I, I think it works well. Decent guitar solo from Phil Collin. But again, I, I think even though he got fired because of his uh, his behavior and his drinking, I think Willis or Steve Clark would have been a better you know, suited guitar solos here I, I find it interesting in the song sequencing that the first two out of three songs are the hardest rockers i think if they were trying to make a conscious effort to steer away from their new wave of british heavy metal roots they definitely weren't doing it on side one which i've always found fascinating and i think we'll get into the sequencing a little bit later Told us 
that his vision of this album was not to just do High and Dry 2, but to do an album that nobody had ever made before. In January 1982, the band moved into Mutt Langer's studio. From day one, Langer made it clear to the band not to get too attached to anything. Lucky for Leopard, they'd yet to write a single song. And Stephen, I'm still trying to figure out, is the song about groupies or is the song about a shy woman? Like, I'm still a little confused. I don't know. You know me. I'm not a lyrics guy, but I will say, yeah, we'll definitely talk about the sequencing of this album, which, uh, spoiler alert, it's fucking perfect. But anyway, <laughs> stage. I don't think that's where Brian was going. No, I'm not. But that's good. <laughs> I think we should have different points of view. I am. And I'll tell you why later on. But stage fright for me. I always viewed this as a song that I was a little bit disappointed they didn't open up their concerts with. Like, to me, this is a perfect concert opener uh, and should be one of those songs that they open up with every time. Not that Rock Rock Till You Drop was a bad concert opener, but this is just a perfect song. I don't know why they did the pipe-in crowd thing at the beginning. Uh, I wasn't sure when, when I first heard the album whether it was real or, or fake. I'm sure it was fake at this point, uh, looking back on a lot of the studio stuff that people did. I don't know if everybody knows the full story about Pete Willis. Sometimes we do these episodes, and because we're doing it, uh, and it's me and it's Sonny and it's usually another music geek uh, like, uh, you know, Brian, for instance, we know mm-hmm. our stuff, but the average listener might not know all the stories that go along with this. So I know what I've read. I know what I, I've seen a couple of interviews with Pete Willis himself. So uh, I don't know the full on story. I just know that Pete Willis basically showed up late to a recording session with Mutt Lang and he was hammered and yeah. couldn't play the guitar solo uh, for whatever he was recording at the time. And he and Mutt went at it and Mutt sent him home. Well, you know, some people would say, well, he's the producer. Pete's in the band. Yeah, but at this time in their career, Pete was nobody. I mean, Mutt Lang had already had all the success in the world. So you can't tell somebody like a Mutt Lang, go fuck yourself, right? Right. Especially, I mean, look at Kiss. I mean, if Bob Ezrin's going to do with Ace, right. <laughs> then, you know, Pete Willis doesn't really have a chance. Yeah, I, from what I've heard, it was just his his drinking turned him into somebody that they didn't want to be around. Right. And whether or not he was a better guitar player or better suited for Def Leppard. It didn't matter because personality wise, it looked like Phil Collin was more of a, a better fit than, than Pete Willis, but not as a music, as a music fan, it hurts, but as a band member, I get it. So it's a team, right? And all three of us can be perfectionists at times. And when you're in that mode and you got a team member that either shows up late or is hammered and isn't paying attention dude, that shit grates on you quick. Mm-hmm. Right. And Mutt, we know is a perfectionist and I can imagine the fuse was short. Yeah, I'd seen an an interview with Peter Minch, their manager at the time, who Def Leppard called him up basically and said, uh, we got to get rid of Pete because it's just it's rough. And so he was getting calls from not only the band, but he was getting calls from uh, Mutt Lang as well, saying, you got to get rid of this guy. And they wanted Peter Mensch to fire him. And Peter Mensch was like, I'm not firing him. I'm not your hatchet, man. You got to fire him yourself. And so they did. They had to fire him themselves and they fired him and they bought in Phil because I guess Joe and Phil already had a relationship at that point. I think when uh, Phil Collin was in Girl, they actually spent the night 
night at Joe Elliott's mom's house is what Joe Elliott said. And so they were friends at that point and they bought in Phil. And when they bought in Phil to do a couple of test solos before he joined the band, Mutt Lang called Peter Mensch and told him that he was he was a better guitar player or better musician than anybody in the band currently. Right. And, and better technical musician doesn't necessarily mean better sounding because <laughs> there's a certain feel and groove that I think Pete Willis had that you can't deny. That's the thing about rock and roll. It's all about feel. I don't, I don't think Joe Perry is the best technical guitarist. I think Brad Whitford is, but Joe Perry has a certain swagger that you can't deny. I think there's a lot of factors in being in a band. It's, and you're right, Brian, it's not the best player for the gig. It's the one that fits best or the one that works best. And then there's the chemistry of the band members themselves, right? You got to be able to live with this guy. Yep, absolutely. Yep, it's a business. <laughs> yeah. Then we go to Too Late for Love, Brian. I mean, it's like a storytelling visual song. And man, Sav's bass is absolutely thumping in this song. Oh, yeah. This is my favorite song on the album. I, I know it was released as a single in the UK, but never in the US, which I think is odd because I used to hear it on rock radio years after Pyromania came out. Uh, this is my favorite type of power ballad. It's moody. It builds perfectly. It doesn't take half the song to get it to its pinnacle. Joe Elliott's you know, higher pitch vocals coming crashing in really well early on. And that part of the song has always been the highlight for me. Uh, because of the, after the initial buildup, the groove of the rest of the song is just awesome. As you said, the, the thumping bass line is very reminiscent to the kind of that laid back groove of the stacked soul artists of the 60s. If you remove all of the Mutt Lang production layers, you can totally hear it. Uh, I hear a lot of Foreigner in this song as well, especially with the guitar sounds, which makes sense because, of course, Mutt Lang produced the uh, the four album in 1981. Just It's a great, great song that I don't think gets enough love. Steven, you hear it a little bit on High and Dry. You definitely hear it in the first three songs of this album. 
But this is the song, this fourth song is where I start noticing the dropping of the music in and out. Do a little bit of a vocal, build it back up. Another hook, here's another trick. Here's another engineering thing. Here's another producing thing you can do. So when you were saying blueprint for late 80s, this type of song is a blueprint for all the hooks you hear. Well, and one of the things I love about this album that I will not give it away, but I don't love about everything after that is that even though they have these songs like Too Late for Love and Fooling on here where it has this slower intro, it builds up into what I consider a rock song so that it doesn't, it's just not, it's not a ballad, right? I like that. I don't mind the slow entry into it. Tesla is great at doing something like that where they have these slower entries, but then once it takes off, it takes off. And even though they can bring it back down, it's still, I just, I love it too late for love for me. And maybe it's because Fulan is just a little bit worn out on me, but I love too late for love. It's just, a uh, pardon the pun it's just a a killer a killer slower build but just heavy it reminds me a lot i don't know how familiar you guys are with the retroactive record that they released but i really really love that song fractured love yeah yeah which is very similar feel to a too late for love or a fool and kind of has that slow entry but great song and a great change of pace after the three rockers out of the box right yeah Fractured Love by far is the best unreleased or non-album track that they ever did, for me, at least. So good. Yep. So then we come to the last song on the first side, which in my opinion is the worst song on the first side. <laughs> and it's because, you know, you let rockers that should be writing about sex, drugs, women, and Jack Daniels, and you start writing about shit that matters, and it comes out to this shit. Uh, Brian, I'm assuming you like this since I don't. You are spot on. We know each other too well. Uh, (laughs) I think this is the most underrated track on the album, especially in the CD age where everything kind of runs together instead of having sides. If you had this on vinyl or cassette, it had side one. And I think it has too much of a similar vibe to Too Blade for Love. So where it builds from the dark and moody to more of a rock track, which I think why it gets overlooked. And in Sonny's case, he doesn't like it at all. So again, as much as I love this album, I always thought the sequencing was a bit weird. I I love the main riff uh, once the song kicks in and then you have those added synth flavors, which are noticeable, but still kind of subtle in the mix. They're awesome. Uh, This is another track which has a very heavy foreigner vibe to it. I might have ended the album with this track because... For me, it's the most epic style song on the entire album. It also features one of the best solos on the album from Steve Clark. I I think it's a really well done song.
Yeah, Stephen, I'm on the opposite end here because, you know, the subject matter is meh. But you wasted a minute and a half at the beginning. You wasted almost two minutes on the solo. This thing could have been like two and a half minutes and it'd been just fine. Well, it's interesting to hear Brian's take on that and the sequencing, because the way he put that, I can kind of see it. I think for me, because it was a cassette for me at the time, Too Late for Love is really just sort of a slow build at the beginning. By the end of that song, you kind of forget that it was a slow build at the beginning. So that's why I think the slow build at the beginning of Die Hard the Hunter doesn't bother me. And I think that it's a good ending to a cassette side. So I think that's why sequencing wise, that doesn't bug me. But just for shits and giggles, Brian, with what's currently available on the record, what would you have put there versus Die Hard? And then where would you move Die Hard? I definitely would have moved Die Hard to the end. And maybe I would have moved one of the faster songs, maybe Stage Fright, to end side one. I might have done that instead. And then what are you going to put in the three slot? I think you could put Rock of Ages there. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting uh, concept for sure. Yeah, I yeah. don't mind this song. I like this song because it doesn't stay slow for long. Yeah, it's a six-minute song, but here's the thing about the longer songs. Billy's Got a Gun, almost six minutes. Die Hard the Hunter, six minutes, 17 seconds. Neither one of these songs, for whatever reason, don't feel long to me. And I don't know what that is. It's just, I guess, I am enjoying the song, so I don't notice that it's long. But Jesus, these days, I notice everything that's long. Uh, and going through this album like 50 times in the last 24 hours, it never felt long to me. So that's that's my personal thought. All right. So then we go to side two, first songs, Foolin'. Brian, I'll tell you, if this was Saxon or Anvil, <laughs> right, or like Halloween, and it was fa I'd be all over making fun of this song. I want to hate the song. I can't. It's too good. Yeah, I, you're you're spot on there. There, there's a a pop element to Def Leppard that they get away with. A bit of a burnout factor here, but I've always enjoyed the song, especially considering it's kind of the brother or sister song to Too Late for Love. I think Stephen kind of mentioned that. I've always liked acoustic guitars layered in ballads. That that's that's my earworm. And this is done really well in Fullin. And while the chorus is hokey, it is an earworm. And who knew that Porky Pig could have been a songwriter? You know, the Fullin. So uh, this is the kind of track that I avoid when I hear it on the radio but if i'm listening to pyromania as an album i still enjoy hearing it which is often the case with a lot of radio burnout songs you know versus the album
So, Stephen, we haven't got to the anthem track because we're going to get to that in a second. But with Photograph, with Too Late for Love, with Foolin, you can now, now that history's been written, can see they are the bridge to hair metal. This is the stuff that you're going to hear for the next eight years after this. Yeah, 100%. For sure, there's blueprints all over this record. from, And it's not just in the songwriting or the band or the playing or any of that stuff, any of the image. It's not just in that. It's in it's in Mutt's production. Um, I mean, it's just, it's all over this record. And uh, if we're going to have sequencing fun, I would have probably moved uh, Fullen into the number two and kicked off the uh, side two with something a little bit uh, quicker paced, maybe action, not words and move, moved everything down. So move action to the kickoff and then fool and then rock of ages, then coming under fire, then Billy's got a gun, maybe something like that. Okay. I think that's a good question for the, uh, the listeners. How would you have reordered this? Yeah, because, uh, coming under fire and action, not words, and we'll get there. Those are two back-to-back songs that, well, we'll get there. I don't want to give sure. away my thoughts on on it yet, but but anyway, Foolin' is another great one. It's it's like everything else with uh with you guys that you mentioned. It's it's just it's fatigue, but it's a fantastic song. Doesn't make it any less of a song. It's a uh, fatigue. It's fatigue. Play something else. <laughs> so talking about fatigue, the anthem for all rock anthems. Here we go, Rock of Ages. This is their back in black. This is their highway to hell. This is their rock and roll all night. Brian, if it's not 1983 and it's 1988, I think we would have got more women in Rock of Ages fooling and photograph videos. But instead, we got Dungeons and Dragons for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was like Conan the Barbarian era, you know, stuff like that. I don't know. You guys can maybe tell me, was Photograph a bigger hit technically or am I just, is that revisionist history? It was. It, it topped out at 12. Rock of Ages topped out at 16. Okay. So it, even though at the time, you know, I, you give it to Photograph, I think today you hear Rock of Ages the most from this album, whether it be classic rock radio or it's sporting events. Uh, it's very Queen-esque, which, you know, the We Will Rock You style drum beat, huge chorus, perfect concert song. The sing-songy Gibberish Open, which is infamous, for, that's from Mutt Lang, the Gunter Gleben, Gwaben Gwaben. That was a whole jokey way of counting off the song instead of the usual, you know, a one, a one, two, three, four. Again, burnout factor here, but I really did love this song the first time I heard it as a kid. It's a perfect blend of a rock song that has the catchiness to be played at a dance club. So you have to give credit to Joe Elliott, Steve Clark, Mutt Lang for writing a song that had so much crossover appeal. And I'd much rather hear Rock of Ages at this point than Pour Some Sugar on Me if you're going to pick like a dance rock song. And to this day, the subtle synths before the the chorus kicks in, uh, you know, that has like that breakdown like rhythm. It's my favorite part of this song. It's really unique that the beginning of the song with Joe Elliott basically basically singing over the synth line and drum beat comes first. And, you know, they probably borrowed that from a, another one bites dust since they're huge queen fans. But I think rock of ages has more of a fuller sound. It's just an all time rock classic, regardless of the burn lamp. <laughs>
Pete couldn't drink. Well, he could, actually. He did it quite a lot. But the problem is his body couldn't handle it. He was only five foot two, and he used to drink for a... He used to drink the same amount as a, as a fully grown gorilla would. The band had been warning Pete to clean up his act for years. But he never did. On the road, we let it go, but... Um, as soon as he started doing it in the studio, that was it. Stephen, you hear the song all the time. You got this Gunter Gleiben Glotten Glue thing going on. <laughs> the lyrics are just lyrics are ridiculous. I can't unsee Phil's ass rocking on the fucking white pants on the video. <laughs> the sword in the stone move is stupid in the video. Somehow the song absolutely works. You know you love that shaking ass, just like the Creature of the Night album. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's a good song when you're fighting all the visual challenges that Sonny mentioned, right? And you still yeah. and you still come out and go, God damn it, I still love this song. Yeah, it's there's a lot of things and and the influence on on uh, this song alone had on regular pop culture, right? Because you have like the Untengleben Glockengloben that the offspring ended up using that for the beginning of one of their songs. It's better to burn out than fade away has been used many times and including sadly in the, well, Sonny won't think this is sadly, but just from a human factor, uh, sadly in the <laughs> I didn't suicide want him to die. I just wanted him to shut up. Yeah, so suicide note of uh, Kurt Cobain, better to burn yeah. out than fade away, which I think I read in an interview that Joe Elliott had gotten that from a Neil Young song, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so it's I think it's a synth bass at the beginning of this song, in my opinion. It, it doesn't sound like a true bass. It sounds like a synth bass. I love it. Yeah. It sounds great. And one of the things that I love throughout this album is I love Rick Allen's kick drum sound. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it feels really thick and it feels really tight. And I just, I dig that heavy groove that both he and Rick Savage lay down throughout this whole entire record. There's a lot of places where this record just has time to breathe in between the riffs and stuff and, and create this groove that uh, is very enticing to me as a listener. That's one of the things that I appreciate. Uh, this song was built for the arenas and the stadiums that Def Leppard is still, after all these years, still playing today. Yeah, it's hard to tell if it's a synth bass or is it the harmonizer, right? So hmm. that, that whole story about Sav uh, laid down his tracks first, but he wasn't in tune. So every time he went sharp, the guitars had to go sharp when they laid down. So when they went to go do the vocals, they had to go put everything through a harmonizer to fix all the bad notes. So is that what you're hearing or is it a synth bass? Like you don't know. I don't know, but this is a, this is a important thing to point out where I was talking about. Everybody may not know all the stories, no matter how much of a rock geek. I don't know the story that you're talking about. So that's news to me, unless it's just something I forgot, which is highly, highly likely, but I don't remember this story. So if there's more to that, tell me more. Yeah. So what had happened was Rick Savage recorded his bass parts on high and dry at the end, but on this album, he did it at the beginning. Uh-huh. But the problem was he wasn't in tune. So every time his bass wavered in pitch, when the guitars laid over it, they had to go sharp every time Savage went sharp. Hmm. Well, they go to put the vocals down, and it's like, uh, the guitars and the bass is out of tune? Uh, we thought we were tuning the guitar to the bass, but the bass was out of tune to begin with. So they threw everything in a harmonizer whenever it was bad to fix it. Hmm. Hmm. Which might be why live it, it always sounds different. Which might also be why it sounds so polished for 83. Exactly. Yep. 
Well, and also, I mean, you talk about today's recording, right? It's a lot of these little imperfections back then that made an album classic versus today where everything, you know, they basically put it in a blender and it spits out a perfect copy. Absolutely. I think that's why the Zeppelin albums, the early ones are so great. Like you can hear little, you know, John Bonham's, uh, you know, like things on, like on his wrist, like if he's wearing a bracelet, you can hear it bleed through and everything. And right. I, that's the beauty I think of early recording. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And I think all that is great and I love it too. But with the kind of backing vocals these guys are putting on, you can't have it. Right. It's a different type of, um, album. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. So then we go to coming under fire and, uh, <laughs> Brian, this song kind of gets lost in this album, but it would probably be the best song on Slang, Euphoria, or X. Oh, without a doubt. I think it's another it, – it's it's a Dark Horse track that is just awesome because it's forgotten because it comes right after their – you know, their, arguably their biggest hit of Rock of Ages. I don't think it gets enough love because it's also a bit too similar to Too Late for Love, and it's a bit similar to Fooling, and and, and a little bit of Die Hard the Hunter. I, I think it deserves more love, and I think quite possibly it's one of Joe Elliott's best vocal performance on the entire album. And Steve Clark's guitar solo is fabulous. So, yeah, don't sleep on this one. I think this is where – I would have done the sequencing a little bit different so it doesn't get lost in the mix. Yeah, Stephen, still a lot of contrast, a lot of dynamics in the song. 
Yeah, so for me, this album is very similar in a lot of ways to Van Halen's 1984. And what I mean by that for me personally is that there's so much fatigue with 84 that it's the songs like Top Jimmy and uh, Girl Gone Bad that I appreciate much more today than I did. Not to say that they're better than a Panama. It's just that you hear those songs so much and you don't hear Top Jimmy and Girl Gone Bad bad so it's the same thing for this record with songs like coming under fire action not words billy's got a gun these are songs you don't hear as often and i absolutely love coming under fire and yeah it's a it's a little bit of that little slow intro but that doesn't last long at all it kicks in uh and it's just a great song absolutely great song then we get to the ninth track again we got action not words i don't know what the exclamation <laughs> point thing is but whatever they're borrowed um, from Van Halen. Van Halen used to do that. Yeah, I guess. Brian, is this song about making a porno? I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> well, we we talked about ass shaking. And, oh, you forgot goblet smashing. That was also one, I think, in Rock of Ages in the beginning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so always a good goblet smash. Uh, yeah, this is an interesting one. I enjoy it a little bit because of the subtle, the slide guitar, the intro if we go to the blues type of, type of deal. But of all the songs, I think this one kind of feels like filler and it definitely fits the Max Norman theory of putting one of the weakest songs as the second to last song on an album. I never skip it, but after the first eight songs, which to me all had the ability to be singles, uh, this feels a bit by the numbers. It's not bad at all, mind you, uh, but it's just kind of there. Uh, it's like, it's an album track, you know? Yeah. Stephen, I'm, I'm with Brian here. It's the first song where like the chorus feels a little forced. Like it just doesn't flow too naturally. It doesn't seem like it. Let me start off by saying you both are wrong. <laughs> We're ignorant sluts. I know. I know. <laughs> Brian and Sonny, you ignorant sluts. Let me tell you about this song. Okay. So this song is probably my favorite song on the album. That's not a single. So that just goes to show you different taste. I absolutely love action, not words. I think it's the hidden gem on this record. Whenever I hear this song, I end up singing this course. And maybe it's because it is simplistic that it works for me since I'm a simpleton. But that's okay. I still love this song. I love the riff in it. I love the melody in it. It's just a great song for me personally. So I don't know what it is, but I dig Action Not Words.
And then last song we got, Billy's Got a Gun. Brian, interesting story with this whole album kind of in total. Uh, Joe Elliott once said, I guess them and Thin Lizzy were sharing the label. Mm-hmm. So Phil Lynott comes up to him and said, I just heard your new album, Pyromania. And that's the reason I split up the band. I can't compete with it. Wow. Right. So, yeah. so I don't know. Uh, Billy Got a Gun. I mean, another story song, right? Yeah. So they were both on Vertigo. So, I, yeah. I think where Action Out Words doesn't feel up to par, I don't think Billy's Got a Gun should ever made the album. Maybe that's blasphemy to some, but I've always thought this is the weakest song on the album and such a poor way to end such a classic album. It kind of sounds like a Survivor knockoff song. You know, the thumping bass line, but it's lacking the punch of I Are the Tiger, no pun intended. So it's the second longest song. Die Hard the Hunter, I think, again, would have been the best way to end this album. I will say, though, however, the best part of the song is the last minute of the song where it transitions from the main song to the darker riffs and chorus. I, I think if the entire song had kept that tone, it would have been a much better album ender. And then you have that backwards masking, which, look, Kiss had already done that on the end of Destroyer back in the mid-70s. So I think it was pretty stupid for Pyromania. But I guess, hey, it's 1983. Let's play with technology. It'll sound so futuristic. No, it sounds like my stereo is fucked up. For me, not a great way to end such a classic album. Steve and I'm in the same boat with Brian. This album ends with two somewhat thuds. I wouldn't say that I skip them every time, but Billy's Got a Gun is not something that comes up when I say great Def Leppard songs. Yeah, okay. So it's definitely not one of the more popular Def Leppard songs. I still like it. There's definitely some melody things in the song itself that I really like. As far as the album as a whole, I don't find it a thud ending on this note, but it's not my favorite song on this record by a long shot. So I kind of get it. But at the same time, it's not a skipper for me. Put it that way. There's some melody changes and some bridges that I really like in this song, uh, especially before the course, like the pre-course. There's some cool, cool changes, cool vocal things happening on this song.
But as Sonny says, the worst song for me on this album would have been quite possibly the best song on later albums. <laughs> Wealth of Riches, I guess. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with the best song on some of the albums that, that Sonny mentioned, but X, 100%. <laughs> Sorry, well, I don't want to. I don't want to tip my hat before we get there, but yeah, but might as well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so before we get everybody's top two, bottom two, this album, although it has some great songs, absolutely had no shot at number one. It was competing with Thriller the yep. entire year, right? So that's just luck of the draw. That happens. But uh, Brian, we want to get your top two, bottom two off this album. Yeah, this is actually pretty easy. It was easier than when uh, I did uh, 1984 with you guys. I, I My favorites, Too Late for Love and uh, Die Hard the Hunter. Uh, least favorites, Billy's Got a Gun and Action Not Words. Uh, Steven, my bottom two, Action Not Words, Billy's Got a Gun. My top two, Photograph, Stage Fright. How about you? <laughs> my bottom two, Billy's Got a Gun and Die Hard the Hunter. Uh, my top two, Action Not Words and... <sighs> Stage right. Yeah. He just can't say photograph because he's sick of it. It's a perfect <laughs> rock song. Can't say it. I won't deny that even a one eighth of a percent. You're you're hundred percent straight. I mean, uh, it would have been very easy for me to go, my favorite two songs on the record are coming under fire and action not words because the two that I'm least sick of. But uh yeah, that's a hundred percent that. And I love Die Hard and Billy's got a gun, but they're just out of all of this, they're probably the least too and we didn't even talk about is it die hard the hunter that they do all the backing masking in the song towards the end where where they call uh bridge uh the russian guy uh uh fuckhead or something like that you guys have heard that story yeah yeah that's the yeah. rock of ages actually is yeah. it rock of ages that they do that yeah, yeah i couldn't yeah. remember that well then on hysteria they had the whole gods of war thing so maybe they were leading up to that yeah who knows yeah all right so you know we love connected to kiss It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So for the historic moment, as Def Leppard is literally making Rock of Ages history, Kiss is licking his wounds from a shitty tour selling Creatures of the Night tour. So they decide to take the makeup off, show their ugly faces on MTV, create a bunch of hubbub, sell a new album called Lick It Up. It worked because they put Kiss back on the map as an 80s band versus the cartoon makeup guys they were. And here's the opening track, Off a Lick It Up, and it's called Exciter.
<laughs> I am so proud of you, Sonny Pooty. I'm so happy that you announced it in that way. It wouldn't have been right if you'd have said it any other way because Exciter. <laughs> because when announcing this song, if you're not whispering it, you ain't in the know. <laughs> it's a great song though, right? I love it. Yeah, it's also the first kind of almost, I don't want to call it thrash, but maybe speed song by Kiss. I guess, uh, you know, Making Love from Rock and Roll Over was, was a fast song, but different. I mean, this is more updated 80s. And it's funny, they must have liked the, the pattern because they followed it up on Animal Eyes with pretty much the same type of opener with uh, I've Had Enough. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But Stephen was talking about his memory earlier. So we had a funny text conversation uh, yesterday before we were recording. And I asked the guys if they had heard the Paul Stanley version of Not for the Innocent. And Steven says, no, we, we've never played that on Grown Up Rocket. <laughs> Sonny comes back, it's like, yeah, we played it three times. And obviously <laughs> you, you, you don't listen to when I do my wild hair, which leads me to ask, do you guys listen to each other when you do your own episodes? <laughs> I, I totally listen to Sonny because I got to make sure he's not saying something nasty about me. So, yeah, 100%. I listen to, to uh, Sonny's wild hairs. But he skips around because the way that I put Not for the Innocent in a couple episodes was I play Not for the Innocent, but then cut in Paul singing the chorus. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you know the song, right, a lot of people just skip and just hit the 30 second thing four or five times like I do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they just skip the song. So, Uh, but yeah, we usually listen to each other's episodes because I don't hear the final edit if Steven's editing. He doesn't hear the final edit if I'm editing. Mm. So when I send it to him to post it up, He'll listen to about two seconds of it just to make sure he's got sound. But besides that, he doesn't have a clue what the hell I did with that episode. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. It's actually, it's cool for us because for me personally, I get to listen to my show like a new episode, which if I'm editing, I don't ever listen to an edited, something I edited when it comes out simply because I've edited it, so I've listened to it a thousand times back and forth, so I don't need to listen to that again. Once I'm done with the edit and I upload it, it's done for me. I never go back and listen to it again. When Sonny edits, it's a brand new episode, and I get to enjoy my show. Yeah, and now, you know, after doing a podcast, and you guys might agree, uh, for so long, I think I I finally understood why when musicians say they never listen to their albums again, because they've been, they listened to it so much while recording it. I get it now. <laughs> thousand percent. Yeah. 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 I don't burn out on it too much when I edit it. So because I'm listening to it in chunks and just making sure like, you know, the stuff fades out well and fades in well and connects together, blah, blah, blah. I'll listen to it one complete time just to make sure all the levels are okay. But after that, I don't listen to a complete. I've, so I've only listened to a complete one time. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So. And then, you know, at times that episode might not come out for two or three weeks. So to me, it's still kind of new. Mm-hmm. And it's important for me to go back and listen to what I edited later on, because if it's still funny, that means it was funny to begin with. Sure. There would be times I'll listen to it going, why did I think that was funny? Because that's fucking stupid. Like, what did I do there? <laughs> I, I And also some advice for, for new podcasters. I think it's good to listen to your episodes because you will improve. Uh, so my, it might be cringy at first. You're like, you don't like the way you hear, but you will improve every time you, you listen to yourself. So I think at least in the beginning, it's good to, to hear the, you know, what you can improve on. Yeah. And I think for us, what it does, um, and I know, you know, you don't work with a partner, but for us, it allows us our own creativity on our own edit, mm-hmm. right? Because we are two significantly different people. Yes, I am better than him. Period. <laughs> but we are two completely different people. And the creativity, you never have to fight it. That is like, well, you should add this and you should subtract this. You should just do it on your own. Don't worry mm-hmm. about it. Right. 
I will say for Pyromania, this is the first time I think Sonny and I have been on par with regarding to the song. So, yeah, it's chuck one up for for us. It only took a Diamond album to do it. Only a Diamond album. So, yeah, <laughs> let's try Thriller next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, this is a Desert Island record. There's no skippers on it for me. It was so impactful for me in my high school years uh, and listening back to it uh, the last 24 hours. Uh, it's every bit as strong as it was back then for me. It's just such a great record. So is it my favorite? Well, you have to wait till the end of the year when we rank them all to figure that out because I'm not sure that it is, but uh, it is definitely a good one. Uh, it's just going to have a lot to overcome to beat out X. <laughs> I, I'll say that I think it's their peak and, and sadly as good as the production is on Pyromania I, I also think it was their downfall as a rock band because I don't think they ever recovered production wise and song wise uh, they don't care because popularity and album sales wise they're through the roof but essentially and we mentioned them earlier they're the British equivalent to Bon Jovi at this point well, you know what's interesting is I saw an interview with Joe Elliott while I'm researching this record, and he said they actually tried to get Mutt Lang involved on On Through the Night, but the schedules didn't match up. And the question in my mind instantly popped up. I wonder what that record would have been with Mutt Lang at that point. But yeah, it's it's just something interesting to think about. Yeah, you wouldn't have heard half those songs. I tell you that right now. <laughs> he would have came in and said half those songs are garbage. <laughs> That's why when I when I first heard that, I'm like, yep, Sonny and I are on point. I, I, I really enjoy On Through the Night and he can't stand it. But I don't know at that age if they were ready for a Mutt Lang, you know? Well, and I don't who knows whether Mutt Lang was ready at that at that point in time. I don't know where that falls in his discography uh, because that would have been 79. He'd have probably already been done with the. Highway to Hell. No, he wouldn't have been done with what year was Highway to Hell? 79. OK, yeah. but he wouldn't have done Foreigner 4 yet, right? No, 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 that's 81. Yeah. So. But yeah back in black. So and he kind of let ACDC do their thing. But ACDC was an established band, you know, with a brother who was a producer already. So correct. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it'd have been interesting to hear though. Sure. Absolutely. Well, this has been fun. Definitely go check out Brian Davis's podcast, Damn Good Movie Memories. I'm sure if you pick the right episode, both myself and Sonny will be on it or separately uh and if not go check out some of his other awesome guests because it's a fun trip down memory lane with uh the movie podcast we'll put the links in the show notes as always and then brian also has his radio show every what is it wednesday thursday night i always get this wrong well technically you are correct when you say wednesday and thursday because it's eastern time yeah, <laughs> so it's true. wednesday going into thursday but thank you guys as always for having me on i absolutely love coming on and it really is my home away from home we have a great rapport together yeah, I, I want to say that you're probably, I mean, the only one that can come close to touching you in terms of being on the Grown Up Rock podcast, probably Steve Wright from the Potter and Hell podcast. But yep. but I think between the two of you, you definitely are basically third co-host on the show. Well, Sonny, anything else you want to add before we get up on out of here? No, I want to let everybody know thanks for listening. Thank you, Brian, for joining. Yeah, if you catch me and Stephen on the same episode. Uh, with Brian, you will hear a distinct difference on how we watch movies. I can imagine. I'm like, did you just notice that happening? And Steve goes, oh, you know what I mean? It's like, oh my God, he would drive me nuts watching a movie with him. I could never do it. <laughs> so you guys have never watched a movie together? Hell no. I oh, that's so. got to watch movies very differently because I'll stop it and rewind it to see if I just saw something. <laughs> 
Okay. See, that's what you guys need to do. You should have a, an episode where you guys watch a movie together and just record. Oh, uh, that sounds brutal. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, that does sound brutal. Well, you guys and, should check out the crossover episode that we do with Footloose. That that I think would be a good entry point. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of times when Brian records his show, Sonny and I, even though we're on the same episode, we record separately. Right. And we don't usually know. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which yeah. I think is better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the last thing I'll tell listeners is, yes, you heard it right. Steven said he was in high school in 1983. That means he is fucking old. hundred <laughs> percent. The best age of rock and roll, by golly. From the fact that I said, by golly. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, crack. <laughs> anyway, before I incriminate myself anymore, I think it's best that I end this episode. The feedback on the Def Leppard episodes thus far has been great. We're glad you guys are in- enjoying it. We're having a great time, as always. We enjoyed Van Halen last year. We're enjoying Def Leppard. It might get a little dicey in these upcoming episodes after Pyromania, but who knows? It'll be a good learning point for all of us until next week and next month we get hysteria which will be the second diamond certified record you guys have a great week see ya later and righty they don't have chocolate shakes (laughs) get ready to shuffle rattle and roll lay us out boys got a rock and roll story to tell and we want to hear yours so go to our website at growinguprock.com 
That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K dot com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.